following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Welcome back to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Steve Edelman, and it is April 17, 2020, which means we're all recording from home, and we're talking to you from your home. So I hope that you're comfortable. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about uh, something that is uncomfortable. There's a shock for the Event Safety Alliance. We're going to be talking about harassment mitigation and making spaces safe when we can all be back in spaces together. So for today's event safety podcast, I am once again joined with Danielle Hernandez from Furman University. Um, And we have as our guests, Kim Warnick from Calling All Crows. Kim is talking to us from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Virginia Schmidt is in lovely Southern California in Los Angeles. And um, well, I guess the first question, guys, is harassment mitigation, safe spaces during coronavirus? Why are we even having this conversation now? It's a good question. Coronavirus is actually the one time where no harassment or assault is happening in event spaces. Um, so we're at the, the lowest lowest rates of assault in events uh, in history, probably. But uh, now is really the time to think about this and to prepare for when we are back together in event spaces. Um, we know that, uh, you know, and, and when we talk about harassment and assault, Calling All Crows really specifically works on sexual harassment and assault. Um, these lessons can apply to other forms of harassment as well, but we're going to speak sort of specifically to sexual violence. Um, and so this is not something that always comes to mind when we think about safety out of this. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we're thinking about hard hats or, um, you know, checking bags for weapons coming through or, or lots of other forms of physical safety. Uh, but what we're hoping to talk about today is really how to include harassment uh, and sexual assault in our safety frameworks so that we ensure that people who are coming to an event to connect, to learn, to have fun, are able to have that experience that they deserve. Uh, absolutely. This is Virginia. And um, just to build on the types of uh, you know frameworks that we can all as event professionals uh, just kind of take for granted and like implement as a given, like standards, especially at our larger events, basic things like tickets, then you escalate to like wristbands and credentials. You've got safety policies like crowd surfing, bag policies, um, security screenings, incident command, all of those things, you know, you scale up or down depending on the size and scope of your event. But there are things that you can say to any other event professional and they'll be like, taken as a given, something that you know is already built into what these event companies and event producers are are doing. And um, one of the things that I love about what Kim and Calling All Crows works on is really asking people to take sexual harassment and interpersonal violence um, as another component, another layer to that safety. So that is, that's the lens through which, you know, we look at it and that we're looking at it together, talking to ESA and other folks. 
You know, it's this is Danielle. I know it's, it's funny you said that right now we're having events without any sexual harassment, but actually I don't think that's true because I've seen numerous reports of people hacking into Zoom calls and harassing people through that. So it's pervasive mm-hmm. in a certain segment of the population that we think that that's okay. So it's really important even now that we address this. So are there like specific ways that we can start this process? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That is very true and not something I had thought about. Um, <laughs> I am I am luckily sort of not a part of many Zoom calls uh, in my work life. So I've been... Uh, you are very spared, lucky. I've been spared yeah, that, so uh, that form of harassment, yes. Uh, <laughs> I decline often. Um, and so... <laughs> So, so yeah, so what can we be doing uh, to prepare for this? And, and I guess I want to add one more thing about the, the why of this being important to you, right? So when you think, Danielle, as you said about people coming in and harassing, because sometimes I'll hear people sort of make light of that. And they're like, oh, it's mm-hmm. funny, like whatever. Like it's just a, like we're trying to like lighten up these Zoom meetings or, you know, in, in a live event context um, in person where it's like, you know, shouldn't you be flattered or it's just a joke. Um, and I think really, really getting all on the same page and getting by in that it's, it's not that funny. Like if, if you want to make a joke, like do better. Um, and, (laughs) and it's, um, like it is a form of abuse. It's using your power to make other people uncomfortable, to make other people feel like they don't belong. It can be very hurtful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and especially when some of these harassment things on Zoom calls, for example, are happening with first graders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've been on a lot of Zoom calls and a lot of Zoom calls in like public spaces. I'm really enjoying the way that like Zoom is being used to continue to have public forums, town halls. Um, I've sat in on a lot of specifically like social justice and criminal justice reform spaces in the last five weeks. And it is not only like a very um, over, like it's a consistent thought, like you're consistently like tense and it's coming into these spaces where you are constantly worried about what might happen. And that's something I think we take for granted in our own homes with our own devices. Like we're still not in a physical like realm where this could be something that we think of as happening to us. And it's exactly as Kim uh, said, the, the abuse of power, you think it's funny. This is something that you have the capability of doing and that you think you can just do. I also have, I want to point out that where I've heard it happening the most is with those populations that are either would not necessarily be physically accessible to some of these people, like, kindergartners, first graders, children that are, would be attending schools that where there are a lot of physical frameworks in place to hopefully mitigate and prevent that kind of abuse and assault. But also I'm hearing a lot of these Zoom bombs are taking place in public forums that are led by women and women of color. Like it's to my mind, very, um, the mentality is very analogous to like Gamergate. These are women's voices that are being amplified and that you have access to in new and interesting ways. And the like Zoom bombs, the pornography, the violence that you see and experience in these online spaces is really upsetting and really dangerous. So uh, thank you so much for bringing that to this conversation. 
It's, it's one of those things that is both a, a blessing and a curse, the mm-hmm. technology of today. So let's, let's pretend we're back to doing events with people in the same space. How can we start to mitigate some of that harassment in live events? Mm. Yeah. So one of the first steps is really getting buy-in from everyone. You need to have buy-in, particularly from your leadership, uh, that this is important and worth doing. Uh, What we've seen is sometimes people will sort of skip that step and go straight to like making a policy, you know, doing trainings, doing these things. But then it you know, if you don't have that buy-in, you don't have the support from leadership, from staff, from your vendors and artists, then you're not actually, you know, that's sort of a waste of your time to put together these other pieces if you don't have the support to actually enforce something and to actually move forward with with training. So really, first off is getting people to say like, yes, this is important. Yes, this is worth doing. And yes, we're going to resource it. Um, so it's really starting with that buy-in. And, and once you have that, it's you know, sort of employ how we think about other safety things. Do you have a policy? How are you making that very clear and enforceable? Um, if your policy is a zero tolerance policy, you need to think pretty hard about what that means. And um, so if you have a zero tolerance policy, like what do you have some tolerance? Are you going to kick out anyone who verbally harasses someone? Are you going to, like, what is the process for that, right? So there needs to be some explanation and a protocol to back up your public-facing policy that your staff understands and that the public understands, you know, that they, if, they, if they report something to you, first of all, who do they report to? A lot of people go to a music festival, for example, and think that if something happens, they should report it to the security staff. And then sometimes you might ask a festival promoter or sort of organizer, who should patrons report problems to? And they will say, staff. And I said, okay, so like security staff? And they're like, absolutely not. Don't report this to security staff. And you're like, that's (laughs) nonsense. Um, Like that doesn't, you need to think through this from like the user experience, right? Like if you're a patron, if you're a staff member, if you're a contractor, if you're a vendor or an artist, and something is done to you, who do you ask for help? And if you don't even have that clarified, it's going to be, you're not in a good position to be able to enforce a policy if people don't even know who to get to, right? So it's, it's these things about really taking the time to think through this as a fuller process of what's your policy, what's actually enforceable, what are the, you know, who do you report to, what do the people are getting what information do they need? Um, what are the options for what will be done depending on the severity of the act reported? You know, if it's zero tolerance, are you saying no matter what is done, we're kicking someone out? Um, if you have some tolerance, um, what you should call your policy is a some tolerance policy, um, but you can just call it a harassment <laughs> policy. Um, and, and, you know, you can really think about it. But I, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is so many people think of this through a marketing lens and not through a safety lens, right? You think about it as like, oh, let's add a one line sentence to the safety portion of our website that says we have zero tolerance for harassment and then do literally nothing else to back that up. And we have to throw that out the window because it doesn't do anything. That doesn't make anyone safer. And to really think about this as a safety issue, not a marketing issue. Mm. And Kim, let me, let me piggyback off of that. You know, from a legal standpoint, which is always a standpoint I like to talk about, having a policy and then doing nothing to enforce it is simply to identify what is the applicable standard of care, the applicable legal standard of care for that event or that behavior, 
and then to also establish a deviation from that standard of care, which is to say an act of negligence. So having a policy for which there is no enforcement mechanism, no resources dedicated to enforcement, no staff training to make enforcement more likely is not only a waste of time, but it actually creates objectively negative consequences. So I'm trying to remember if it was you, Kim, who showed me a card that somebody could be given at an event and they would hand it to like a somebody at the food and beverage area to suggest that someone was harassing them. Was it you or was it somebody else who had done that? I did not do this. I've seen this done, but I, I have not, I'm not necessarily a proponent of it. So, so talk about that because what I'm thinking of here is what I just described is, you know, basically a business card size card that says something innocuous, but the staff are trained to interpret it as this is a signal that someone is nearby who is harassing me. I thought it was a neat idea when I heard about it. What's your take on that? And don't let me sidetrack the conversation if this is just a terrible idea. No, it's great because I actually hear this come up a lot. I get like, I, the things that uh, flood my inbox are definitely like stories of sexual violence and then like this concept of like the, some people call it the angel shot. I've seen that as a business right. where there's Mary, sort of a, a bunch of varieties of it. So um, on its face, it's, I, I'm not super against it. I think it's usually people don't think it all the way through. And so it's sort of the same issue that I have with the idea of like a zero tolerance policy that someone might like put a sign in the bathroom that says, if you tell our uh, bartender that you want an angel shot, then they will help you. But they don't train their staff on how to help anyone. And they only put those signs in the women's bathrooms. They don't put them in the men's bathrooms, which is not the picture of sexual harassment. And it also, in order for it to be effective, everyone needs to know about it, right? If you, and once everyone knows about it, it's no longer an innocuous thing. So for, for it to be effective, everyone needs to understand how to get help. And if the way to get help is to just like to ask for something off menu, then the people who hear you ask for an angel shot should know what that means. And it's no longer subtle. And so a business card is like a, a slightly different version of that, right? Because you can hand something to someone without other people hearing what that is. So that is an improvement on the just like verbal request for an angel shot because you, it is more discreet. But there are ways to also just, I think sometimes we, we do worry about people's hesitancy to ask for help um, and, and sometimes putting those words together. But the act of like handing someone innocuous is still the same level of just writing down on a business card, I need help and handing it to someone, right? And so it's, it is a method. The bigger and more important thing is to train people on how to respond to it and to build people's confidence that when you ask for help, you'll actually be helped um, rather than I have it just sort of, this is anecdotal evidence, but I would go to bars that I've seen the sign angel shot in and ask for one just to see what happened. So, I was not helped. <laughs> you were not helped? No, because they're not trained on what it means. And so I would be like, do you know what an angel shot means? And they would be like, what? <laughs> okay. Like, cool. Thank you so, for that. Wow. So this is yeah. a nice tie-in back to, you, you gave so much good information. There's so much to unpack here. Uh, my question is, so obviously we're going to train people. Good. I love training people. <laughs> but the first thing you said was we need to get buy-in. Uh. So what are some tricks 
what are some techniques? How, how do we get buy-in? And I will say, in my own personal experience, whenever I can get buy-in from people I'm teaching, we're all on the same page. We're all working towards the same goal. How can I get people's buy-in on this? And, and please speak slowly because we want to write this down. <laughs> so so tell, tell us, Mr. Science, because this is I think that there are so many um, layers to this question because I think you're right. This is a very common question. It's something that I've really come up against when trying to implement policies and practices and protocols. Um, so maybe I, I'll speak to like my own experience and my opinions and thoughts on this. And then Kim, you can refute and, or uh, offer more of your own like brilliance to it. But um, I think the, unfortunately you can't always appeal to the like goodness of people. Like the, this is the right thing. The correct thing to do is actually very rarely successful for the people that require like whose buy-in you require to be able to actually develop and implement successful policies because the right thing to do is only a very fractional part of how they function in terms of their business so the buy-in often requires a financial incentive a liability incentive and a marketing incentive if you are, if this policy or practices or even acknowledging that these things are necessary is uh, going to risk the bottom line, risk ticket sales, risk attendance, increase a perceived liability, then you're going to have a much harder time getting buy-in and you have to be able to unfortunately come with a lot of facts. So Here are the carrot and stick approach. Exactly. Like here's the actual data, which is something that I also, I think that Colin Alcrows does incredibly well. Like the stats are there. The data is there. Surveys are there. This is what we know from the world at large. And then here's what we know from events specifically. So the information is there, but in you're coming up against all of those like business oriented like hurdles. Um, and there's a couple of like actual nuances additionally to that. So there's what I love, what the perspective that Steve brought up, the, the legal and liability perspective. This is something that I think um, is so often misjudged and mischaracterized, your perceived liability versus your actual liability. If you have a policy that is not enforceable and not functional, then you are acknowledging a problem that you are aware of that you're not actually doing anything about, and you're more likely to uh, experience experience blowback, additional blowback legally. Um, so I think that that's just not real. Like, I think we need to get to a point where that perceived liability is acknowledged and accepted as not real. The other thing that I think the nuance that I would add on to even being able to come to people with facts is that depending who you're presenting these facts to, the additional hurdle is that you have to get them to believe them. The, this doesn't happen at our events. This doesn't happen. This isn't real is still so pervasive at the highest levels of people that are that you're coming to. So you could potentially bring all of these facts and all of this data and say like, 
our actual event at our actual event 75 percent of patrons experience some sort of unwanted touching or groping or cat calling and they may just not believe it and that's their own thing to unpack but those are very real hurdles that uh, in my experience have been the challenges to buy-in the other thing that i think would be helpful for buy-in is making sure that in the conversations you're having multiple you're inviting multiple perspectives to the table so you are unlikely to get a lot of uh, buy-in by only having white women who are of a certain age sitting at a table talking to white men of a certain age and economic class, you're unlikely to get a lot of like a movement forward in that conversation. So inviting... Nice, nice job calling us out, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Anytime. Um, happy to do it. <laughs> um, I think in making sure that valuable voices and valuable perspectives, whether it's experts in the field, experts specifically in harassment. I mean, I think that is additionally, I'm going to keep calling, like keep shouting them out because I love them so much. And I love Kim so much, like calling all crows, the expertise and the like very calm and rational approach to, Hey, here's what you're dealing with is such an important voice to have at the table, having artists, having people of color at the table, having people from all different walks of life and like people who are there on behalf of the patrons, people who are there at the table on behalf of your staff, like create a full picture of what, what is required for buy-in to take that perspectives one step further. Once you actually get to implementing or on site being on site you need to make sure that the groups of people that you're inviting to that table from your vendors are also reflecting the multiple perspectives and experiences of your patrons your staff and the people that are implementing the policies thank you virginia that is a lot and that was a lot sorry so so <laughs> buy-in no it's good is buy-in is hard okay hard. kim <laughs> Sorry, my ego, is, yeah, my ego has been grown uh, by Virginia, so I need a minute. Um, no, so one of the, so, so Virginia nailed it. I guess the one piece I would really advise as well, like the right thing argument often doesn't hit people, personal stories do. And I'm not advocating yeah. that you need to like dump your trauma onto the table in order to create change. I don't think that's required. There are many people who have like volunteered their stories and their experiences for you to use in that way. Um, but you also can, it doesn't need to be a traumatic story, right? But I, I think that this is a very human problem and data is definitely part, you know, so like more like survey data or the, these other pieces are part of that pitch and they need to be there. But I think it's Andy Goodman from the Goodman Center talks about sort of, you need to open the door to data with a story that like people don't listen to, to data until you've opened their mind to listening to it. And so you need to start there. You need to start with the why, right. Of saying, Hey, this, um, this is real. And this has, impact on people's lives. Like here's the story of someone who went to a festival who was groped six times over the time of the festival, didn't tell anyone because they are used to it and didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, and ultimately decided to not go to festivals anymore. And that sucks, right? Like that person just felt like this was so normal and so part of being at our festival that they did not ask for help and they are no longer our customer. Um, and not only are they not our customer, but that person did not deserve that. And no, we are not happy that that person was groped six times. 
That is not a happy story for us to hear. Um, and I think go in looking for allies. Uh, many, many people either are personally survivors of sexual violence or know someone who is a survivor of sexual violence. This is a profoundly pervasive problem. Like mm -hmm. one in four women, one in six men, and one in two trans people have survived sexual violence. At least one person in that room that you're talking to is either going to be a survivor or know a survivor, and they're gonna, you're gonna be able to access that empathy and access that care um, to say, this is a real problem that affects us all, and we need to do something about it because I don't want for people to come to our event and leave traumatized for life. That is the worst possible outcome of bringing people together for a joyful experience is for them to leave as a victim of assault. And if you can do that and then go into the data and go into the policy, you're gonna be able to move someone in a different way when you really try to see them as a potential ally who just doesn't, who's not applying that knowledge of like, oh, my mom is a survivor and that could have happened here and I would never be able to live with that if I knew that like my own like family was hurt at my event. I need to make sure that doesn't happen for my family or for anyone else's family. If you can access that, you're gonna be able to move people in a different way um, than only relying on that legal framework or only relying on that marketing framework, which by the way, you're also going to need to employ. <laughs> but you know, start with that, that like the hard things and keep reminding people of that when they say, well, there's no room in our budget though, um, or this might be a legal liability problem, or you know, continue to go back to the why when you hit those walls. I love that creating yeah, empathy through stories. You can't see me right now because, you know, audio medium, but I'm shaking my head so that my whole body is moving. Yeah. And actually, no one can see us, but we were all nodding while Kim was talking. Yeah. <laughs> it was and, a I mean, whole bunch of head bobbles. <laughs> and, and just a, a real quick anecdote is that trying to implement and develop policies an organization um, in the past couple of years, I experienced like that shift that Kim is speaking to where like it took several staff, actual staff members of this organization saying in front of everyone to leadership who were resistant to accepting that harassment and assault happens at their events admit like tell like basically confessing that was the tone like it was a confessional which is problematic in and of itself that they personally had experienced harassment and groping and sexual assault at the events that they were leading and managing and working to get even a a little bit of empathy and buy-in um it was really like crazy powerful moment and for a lot of reasons and not the least of which is that tangentially related, it's super problematic and effed up that uh, as a society, we require personal stories and personalization to like just empathize with other humans as a, as a group and as a whole. That's my, that's my own opinion on that. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I think it's reality. You know, and basically, every safety law is mm -hmm. written in the blood and bones exactly. of the people that died for it. So this is yep. just a different aspect of that, unfortunately. It sounds like we have some work to do here. Um, are there some resources that we should look for? 
Yes, there are. Uh, so Colonel Crows um, has, and I think this will be in the show notes as well, but on our website, uh, our Here for the Music campaign page has a guide for venues uh, to really be thinking about this from, from beginning to end. So really thinking about who are the right people to have at the table? What do you need to, what should your policy be? Because uh, a lot of people will come to me and say, well, can you just give us a sample policy? And my answer is no, I cannot. Uh, because I don't, <laughs> there's so many questions that go into policies and like, I need, you need to grapple with those questions in order to write a policy that you'll actually enforce. So if I give you a policy and you copy and paste it somewhere, I just you know, did a bad thing for both of us. But we do have a guide that really walks you through what are those questions you need to be answering? What are some resources you can use to think about those questions? And then, you know, there are there are some samples, but they, you still are going to need to edit them at the end of the, the resource guide. So, so that goes through, you know, how to think about a policy and then which types of trainings to target at which groups of people. So not everyone needs to go through every form of training, probably everyone on staff needs to go through at least a little bit of compliance training to understand what the policies are, maybe a lot of compliance training, depending on what state you live in. Um, and everyone should go through a little bit of, you know, how to respond to when someone makes a complaint. Uh, because if you're identified as staff, again, patrons don't know who, you know, they might come to you and ask for help. And that doesn't mean you need to know exactly what to do, but you need to know how to not re-traumatize them, how to be like calm and collected and who to get like that as a staff members, every single staff member should know how to be, you know, calm, cool, collected, empathetic, and who the person on staff is that they should call over. So there, it, it goes through those sort of like, which people need to be trained on which types of training. Um, and then where to access some of those trainings. So that's, um, those are sort of two major, I think, resources that are, that are quite helpful. Uh, well, it's all in one, one resource, two sections. So, so and that'll be in the show notes. Great. Kim, let me just clarify a couple of things, because maybe I thought this was simpler than it actually is. Is it really not just a matter of you smart people saying, don't be an ass. Don't don't be mean to people. Don't don't say harassing, hurtful. Is it actually more complicated than that? I love the idea that I'm that powerful. Um, I wish that I could just speak into a microphone for the world and be like, just do better, everyone. It would be helpful for all of us. And then our problems would be gone. Um, but no, I'm not that powerful. None of us are. Uh, and so unfortunately, you need to do more than ask people to do the bare minimum and like be kind to each other. Um, and, and so, right, like we don't expect people to um, follow all of our other rules without some sort of consequences if they don't follow the rules or understanding of what the rules are, right? Like think about how much signage you need to put up to make sure that people don't leave through certain exits. Assume that people are not thinking about it as hard as you are. Um, like mm -hmm. I think about this all the time. And so when I hear about it, I'm like, why though? Like it's not that hard. Um, but you know, people like this is common and you need to address it as sort of this pervasive problem that needs lots of signage and planning to mitigate it. And just to follow up on one other thing that you said that caught my attention. So you don't provide kind of a 
template that somebody can just go and do. You know, they can't just go online and find, you know, calling all crows guide to not being a harasser. <laughs> There's not something like that. Is that because everyone's circumstances are a little different than everybody else's and they should probably be paying attention to their own circumstances? Yes. And I think the other the other thing I want to put into there, because yes, that's beautiful. Thank you for all of these, these questions. It's amazing. Uh, everyone's circumstance is different. And, and the other piece is that, so the way, Steve, that you're talking about it is as an individual, right? Saying like, you don't be a jerk, right? And what we're thinking about is also like, how do we get everyone to make, create an environment that's hostile to jerks. Um, we're not like, I'm not out there trying to talk to every abusive person and just be like, but please stop though. Um, it would be better for us. What we're trying to do is create an environment that when that behavior is done, it's not accepted and it gets booted. Right. And if you create an environment that's hostile to harassment, you will see less harassment in your space. Um, if you hold the line at rape, then you're going to get everything above rape, right? If you're like, well, of course, if someone is raped here, we will take action, but up everything up to and including, you know, verbal threats, um, groping, catcalling, everything above that, if that's sort of like, well, you know, we'll consider it or we'll do it on a case by case basis. Like you need to hold the line sooner than the absolute worst thing because people dip their toe into other forms of violence before going straight to the most extreme version, right? You don't go from zero to sexual assault. You start at, you know, verbal harassment, maybe get into a little bit of physical assault, maybe some like verbal threats, but you, people, test the environment for what they're going to be able to get away with. And so if you create an environment that's like pretty welcoming to most of these behaviors, and then oftentimes, you know, we'll hear like, oh, it's just a joke, like get over it, calm down. That is an environment that's welcoming to the most extreme forms of violence. Um, in addition to these other forms of violence, which we also don't want to be clear, um, you shouldn't only like, hold the line sooner because you don't want the most extreme violence. Like you also don't want those forms. Um, but people tend to think about sexual harassment and sexual assault as quite different problems. And what we want people to think about is those are on a continuum. And that if you lump them together, you can better understand how to address the environment and not just try to find all of the individual jerks um, and like deal with them on a one-on-one, -on -one, let me change your mind basis. Sounds like we were looking for a culture change at our events. Yeah. That was a much more succinct form of what I just said. <laughs> no, but it took all of those words for me to have this epiphany. So thank you. See, this is why uh, Danielle makes the big money. <laughs> this is why it's so much easier just to say that. I was like, but again, me saying it does not make it happen. It takes all of the work on the ground with all of the different people. So we've been talking about policies and why there's not just a cookie cutter approach. Um, what is calling all crows? Tell us what does the name mean? Uh, and then tell us where people can go, how they can get some information so that, you know, when this podcast is done, they can actually make their environment, well, hostile to jerks. Uh, <laughs> tell us how that happens. That might be our new uh, 
trademark <laughs> hostile to jerks. Um, so Calling All Crows uh, has been around for about 12 years. We're a nonprofit that works nationally in the U.S., um, but are based in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, so the name uh, comes from a song, actually, with, with really the idea that the lyrics are, if you, if you feel like you're witnessing a movement, then get up, girl, and let them know you're free. Um, so it's this idea of movement building and, and nice. that if you want to see change, uh, you need to create culture change and get people to buy in with you and to really movement build in order to see the world that you want to be a part of. So that's the name. Um, and, and in terms of resources and how we're working on this, so we, uh, one of our major campaigns is our Here for the Music campaign, where we're working on preventing sexual violence and uh, at events. And so we do that through policy consultations, through these kinds of speaking events, but also through training. So we do trainings for staff, uh, for touring artists and their crew, but also for patrons. And so you can um, sort of, we can help with this policy consultation and process as well as the training of your staff. Um, and for, for larger scale events, we will also do work on the response efforts. So helping you to um, find resources to have on site for response efforts if, if you are an event uh, where you don't have access uh, to sort of like mental health experts in your community. So do we want to talk about what we're getting out of our current experience with the pandemic mm. and how that impacts this particular mission. Virginia, take it away. Yeah. Oh, I, I want to talk about this. So one of the things that is uh, coming up for me a lot in this that I'm seeing kind of play out and that I, I think that we need to take forward into our events and into all of our physical spaces is kind of this new perspective on boundaries. Um, I think it's been hopefully a wake-up call for a lot of people who haven't thought about boundaries in terms of like consent and harassment um, and have looked at it as a very specific form of like this specific action equals this and are always looking for like the definition of what that specific action is. But you see a lot of people like sharing on social media like this crazy individual, this wild person was two feet away from me without a mask. And I asked them to move back and they didn't move back. Welcome to the lives of people that experience harassment. Like welcome to the experience of anyone who feels vulnerable or uncomfortable in a space where their consent and their either physical or emotional or mental like health and boundaries are not automatically respected. Where so like the expected social norms of stay six feet away, wear your masks, don't like, don't breathe on me are not being honored. So what I think we need to remind people as we come out of this and move back into gatherings and groups is you have a new perspective now on what it feels like to have your personal space, your own comfort level, your mental and physical and emotional health violated or be to be constantly aware of that as you move through the world. Um, and that includes like online spaces as we spoke about earlier with the Zoom bombs. So I would, I think that that is a, a huge lesson that we need to move forward with that everyone now has access to that tension and that like fear and that stress in your body and in your mind of existing in a world where you may not be safe and you well, have no control over the, what other people are going to do to you. 
And I think that plays back into our culture thing because there are plenty of people who don't believe that they need to be six feet away from you and they think they're entitled to be closer to you and they don't need to wear a mask and they don't see any reason why they can't go to church or Home Depot or, mm-hmm. you know, stand shoulder to shoulder, any particular thing right now. So it's it's a it's a case study in in that right right this minute. Yeah. For the world shot. Absolutely, yeah. Danielle. I think that um there's also the perspective around culture where you cannot separate anymore under any circumstances the importance of culture internally and externally and from the focus of safety and um for your staff and the culture and safety practices that you instill internally in your organization and amongst each other in your smaller group and how you uh, view it for your larger audience and outside of your organization because we're seeing so much conversation, rightly so, about how organizations and companies are treating their staff and how seriously they're taking the safety of their staff because it has a direct correlation to the um, safety and health of their customers and patrons. We see the conversation with restaurant workers um, and other essential workers. The culture that you instill, that you create in your organization and company is inextricably linked to what you are foisting and fostering in any sort of way that you want to like imagine the intertwined connectedness to your patrons, to the greater world, to culture. That's fabulous. Uh, so we're coming up on the end. You guys have any final thoughts you want to share? Wow, that was a really good. Um, that was a really good mic drop by Virginia. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I think you know. I'll, I guess I'll end by you know just sort of reminding us to to go back to to building empathy and building stories as a as a pathway to success here. Um, that you know you do need to do the work, and this is not you know as easy as copy paste. Here's a new policy, uh, but to get that buy in and to to create that culture change that we're looking for is to humanize this issue and to to make people understand that not taking action causes harm and that when every time we choose to not create a policy to not train our staff to not take this seriously we are part of the problem we are creating environments that traumatize people for life um and i don't don't want to be a part of that and and i hope you don't want to be a part of that either and so let's work together so that you know, we create safer environments um, and we can, you know, be really proud about the gatherings we put together and the, the safe and joyful time that people have at the events that we're curating. Well, thank you guys very much. Virginia and Kim, you are fabulous guests. I hope we get to have you on again. Um, while we are all locked down in quarantine, maintaining social distancing and boundaries, which hopefully will create good habits in the future. There is a project that you can help with right now that hopefully will make life easier for all of us on a going forward basis. The Event Safety Alliance is creating written guidance for how venues and event organizers and creators and workers can safely reopen whenever that actually happens wherever you are for whatever size event you work on we are creating general guidance so that when places do start to reopen they do so safely because we're going to get one shot to do this right and if the smaller regional venues 
open safely and we don't have mass contagion as a result, that's going to allow more places to reopen safely and so on and so on. And so we would love to have your input, your guidance and your help. So if you would like to participate in this process of creating written guidance, um, we don't need you to undertake the entire thing yourself, but we're trying to gather as many smart kids around the table as possible. So info at eventsafetyalliance.org is our email address. Uh, Send us your contact information. Tell us that you would like to work on the reopening project. Uh, We will have a clever and catchy name for it at some point. Right now, the tentative title is simply the grand reopening. Just let us know that you would like to participate in that and help venues and events reopen safely under whatever circumstances that can happen whenever it can happen we would love your help so info at eventsafetyalliance.org we are all working to get out of this terrible situation and with your help we'll be able to do it safely thank you thank you all and be safe